Well, my first technological success, <laughs> which I had nothing to do with. I'd like for, to invite you and encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And uh, leave your Bible open this morning. We're going to be um, looking at this very significant passage, the favorite of many. And we're going to let God speak to us through it. I want to thank my share group for helping me to verify some information, especially grateful to Larry and Debbie Santee, who uh, confirmed some things through personal experience that I'm going to be sharing this morning relating to a personal hero. Back in uh, July of 1998, I opened up the morning newspaper and I read of the passing of one Leonard Sly in Apple Valley, California. Leonard Sly was 87 years old when he died. And my eyes got a little misty because he was a hero of mine. When I was growing up in the mid-50s in Texas as an early grade schooler. Of course, I admired him not as Leonard Sly, but as Roy Rogers, the king of the cowboys. <laughs> and from, from the mid-1940s to the late 1950s, Roy Rogers was the number one box office attraction among Western stars. And he was the first cowboy to gallop into our living rooms via television. And Roy Rogers also was a marketing genius. He ended up having his name affixed to more products than any celebrity who was not a creation of the Walt Disney Studios. And so, as a first and second grader, perhaps even a third grader, I fired off Roy Rogers cap pistols, wore a Roy Rogers hat, belt buckle, and boots, ate Roy Rogers cookies, and went to school every day with my lunch in a Roy Rogers lunchbox. In fact, to my mother's great chagrin, every family photograph that I'm in in the first grade, I'm wearing that hat and I'm pointing that six shooter right at the camera. And in later years, it irritated her even more that that was in every picture. Now, this isn't to say that Roy Rogers was a marketing shyster, because actually he personally examined every product before he would attach his name to it. And then he reexamined it annually. And if the quality dropped, he removed his name. And this was characteristic of Roy Rogers. He uh, was known in his public persona and in all of his movies and his seven years worth of television programs as a person who represented faith and morality, honesty and the treating of people fairly. In fact, he was the first uh, cowboy star who never fought with Indians. And although he was a crack marksman in these shoot 'em up westerns, he never shot anybody in all of his westerns. Now, he would he would shoot the gun out of the hand of the bad guy so they couldn't shoot anybody uh, either. But he was known for honesty, morality and fair play. He was always faithful to his co-star, his wife, Dale uh, Evans Rogers, and to the other great love of his life, which was his horse trigger. 
And he was a lifelong friend to his sidekicks. Now, evidently, and this is where Larry and Debbie helped me because their families grew up alongside the Rogers family in Victorville, California, and Apple Valley, California. Evidently, Roy and Dale were the same off-camera as they were on-camera. The long and profitable arrangement that Roy Rogers had with his agent never involved a signed contract. It was always with a handshake and a word that was kept. He was a good friend and a helper to the people who helped him in his career. And especially their values were seen in the compassion they had for abused and neglected children. And they themselves adopted many troubled children and raised them with love in their household. And it wasn't that tragedy didn't come into their lives In fact, because sometimes of those kids, uh, one of their daughters they adopted was killed in a a bus accident. Uh, Roger's son, Dusty, a troubled young man, died in his sleep while in the army in Germany. And then there was Robin. Robin was born to Roy and Dale as a baby who was severely afflicted with Down syndrome in a day when nothing was known about that disease. And, and really, it was, it was encouraged that parents would institutionalize the child and get on with their lives. But Roy and Dale refused to do that. And they took Robin into their home, loved her, raised her, gave the best of care until she passed away at age of two. And following that tragedy, Dale, Rogers, Dale Evans Rogers wrote a book. It became a bestseller entitled... Angels Unawares, and it took her a long time to to find a publisher for the book because they just didn't write transparent, honest tales involving children with severe ailments like that. And multitudes of people received hope, healing and help because of the transparency of this couple about their view that their faith in Christ had been deepened and that Robin had been a gift from God brought into their lives for very specific purposes. In fact, Dale, uh, Roger, Roy Rogers was to perform at Madison Square Garden before a national TV audience shortly after uh, Robin's death. And he asked permission to begin his performance by singing the song Peace in the Valley. Now, that had an overtly Christian message and and um, he was refused that request, but he was very persistent about it. And finally, The management gave in, and in honor of Robin, he shared his heart, and he sang the song with a Christian message of hope. And many multitudes responded with gratitude. Now, why do I spend all this time talking about that in our service this morning? Because I want us to grapple with a particular question for the next few moments today. And here's the question. Where are the everyday heroes? Where are the models and the mentors who live well all the way through to the finish line? And how can you and I be among their number?
Because, you see, that's really our calling as, as Christ's followers. In a throwaway culture that tends to produce throwaway products and throwaway people who somewhere along the way blow up, burn out, or break down, how can we live lives that endure? The scripture we're going to read, look at it this moment, this morning, will we'll tell you that the God of this age... This self-absorbed, self-preoccupied, self-focused age has blinded our eyes, lest they come to the light of the glory of God in Jesus. And you and I who've received the light are called to be those everyday heroes. So how could we count it among the number? Second Corinthians. The Apostle Paul was used of the Spirit of God to... Write fully half the New Testament. And this letter, among all his letters, is probably the most confessional, the most personal, the most transparent. He just opens up his life, warts and all, and lets us see into his soul. But in the process, he shows us how we can live lives that endure. You follow along as I read this fourth chapter out loud, and then we're going to uh, take a few principles from it about living the enduring life. Therefore, since through God's mercy, we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know That the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people 
They overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This passage says and shares a lot. We're going to just take a few principles that can guide us in this matter becoming a people who live long and well to the glory of God. That we build lives that endure. So what is the key to building a life that endures? Well, it begins with mercy. God's mercy. The life that endures is framed by God's mercy. It always begins with the meddlesome ways of a merciful God who takes the initiative and invades our lives with this extraordinary grace. And if we will but respond, he pours out his love's mercy upon us. And Paul, the writer of this passage, is a man who is mesmerized by God's mercy. He just never gets over it. In Ephesians chapter 2, he, he talks about the fact that we all are dead in trespasses and sins. And even when we were children of wrath, God took the initiative to pour out his mercy upon us that we might be called his children. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says, in view of that magnificent mercy, let us offer our bodies a living sacrifice to God. And in this passage, he says, in in view of God's mercy, have this ministry. Now, what ministry is it that we have in view of God's mercy? Well, we have to look back to chapter three. And there we have a contrast between two approaches to life. One approach is the life in the spirit, which is framed by God's mercy. The other is the life of seeking to earn God's favor by self-effort, by ceaseless striving in our own Self-righteousness. And Second Corinthians 3 says the life in the spirit leads to life. The other way leads to death. Life in the spirit leads to freedom. The other life leads to bondage. Life in the spirit reconciles us to God. Life of ceaseless striving and self-effort to earn the favor of God keeps us alienated from him. The life that endures is framed by the mercy of God. We come to the end of our self-directed striving and we dive into the ocean of the mercy and the grace of God. We come to anchor our lives in the knowledge that we are greatly loved by God. And a child who knows he or she is loved By their parent, even when they don't deserve it, is a child who is free to begin to grow in a healthy and wholesome manner. And in Christ, 
we have the assurance that God loves us with an everlasting, unconditional, Calvary kind of love. Which means God took the initiative, sent his son who went to a cross to pour out his mercy and his grace upon us who did not deserve it. And so in 1 John 3, 1, we can read and we can join in the chorus. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Now, we understand those of us who have walked a while with Christ and have read our Bibles, that as soon as we dive into the ocean of God's mercy, God goes to work in our lives and he seeks to change us, to transform us more and more after the character of Christ. But we also understand this. God is ever seeking to change us, not so that he can love us. He works to change us because he loves us. And consequently, we're freed up to participate with his loving initiative of transforming our lives. And when we get to heaven and we are fully changed, God will not love us one bit more than when he began his transformational project. The life that endures is framed by mercy. Because a child who knows he is loved by his parent is free. To live for the long haul. Sometime back, um, an, an, an American championship diver led the U.S. swimming team to the Olympics and, and at that time earned an unprecedented number of uh, gold medals. Dive after dive, he just nailed it. He just nailed it. He won every event that he entered. And someone uh, interviewed him and said, How do you do that? How do you withstand the pressure? Of making a dive under in competition like this where one little mistake could lead to failure. And he said, well, this is how I do it. Every time I'm on the platform and I get ready for the moment of release, I just remind myself that even if I mess up this dive, my mother still loves me. And because of God's loving initiative in our life, because of the mercy and the grace he extraordinarily bestows upon us. We who don't deserve it, but are greatly loved by him. We know that we can live each day relaxing in the atmosphere of the assurance of the love of God. And when you breathe the oxygen of God's love, you are in the environment to live well for a lifetime. Now, as we we go a little deeper with this passage, we see, secondly, that the the life that endures is not only framed by God's mercy, but it is freed up by the quality of integrity. Thank you, Scott. We're going to talk about the children's sermon a little bit more this morning. Paul had a long Sometimes difficult relationship with the Christians in the city of Corinth. We have in the New Testament two long letters he wrote to them and they infer that he wrote other letters to them. And it appears from the evidence of the scriptures that he visited these people in the city of Corinth many times. They knew him well, so they know whether Paul was lying 
when he said that he had renounced deception and distortion and that he was living the truth and sharing the truth among them. They knew whether he was doing that. And what Paul is displaying here is the character quality called integrity. Now, what is integrity? Is not integrity represented in the person who is the same off camera as well as on camera, off stage as well as on stage, the same on the inside as he purports to be on the outside. He is a person in whom there is no guile. And it's hard to find those people, isn't it? It appears that most of us grow up obsessed with three fundamental fears. The fear that is uh, lack of self-confidence, insecurity, which fosters the fear of insufficiency, which feeds the fear of insignificance. Who am I? Do I have a place to stand in this world? Can I measure up? Or am I going to fail? Does my life matter? Is anybody even going to remember that I was here? And we are hounded by these fears. And so we began to wear masks. We create an image. And we spend a great deal of our lives projecting and protecting That image, lest people get behind the mask and discover the inadequate, insufficient, insignificant person we just might be. And so we wear ourselves out protecting and projecting the image. And so frequently that can lead eventually to blow up, burnout, breakdown, or just fade away with a whimper. And the glorious good news of the gospel is that when we embrace the Savior who pours out the mercy of God upon us, we can be at rest in the love of God because Jesus becomes our identity, our sufficiency, and our significance. And we are liberated. We are freed up from the bondage of wearing masks, playing games, and protecting images. And we become the person who God made us to become because our sufficiency, our identity, and our significance is in Christ. So what about it? Are you coming to the point in your life when you can spend more time thinking about God, consequently less time thinking about yourself, therefore freed up to think, spend more time thinking about others? This plays out in our motivations, doesn't it? And we see that in Paul's life when he says, my motive in life is to serve you and to please Christ, to live for the glory of God And for the benefit of others. The life that endures is liberated by the quality of integrity. Now, does that mean we have to get it right all the time? No. In fact, that's that's kind of the point. Integrity is about transparency. 
It is about honesty. Um, I've been kind of intrigued by the story of one of the players in the, the World Series, uh, Josh Hamilton of the Texas Rangers. Uh, Josh Hamilton, coming out of North Carolina University, was the number one baseball pro, um, prospect and uh, was ready to sign a very lucrative contract, and then he just blew his life up because of a severe addiction to alcohol and cocaine. And through this, just ruining his, his early career, there were men, godly men, who gathered around Josh Hamilton and cared about him, shared Christ with him, and walked with him through the darkness and the difficulty of his struggles. And Josh ha- Hamilton came to faith. And through a, a long process, began, began to give his life over to God and to find freedom from the bondage of, of his addictions. And so about the year 2005, he kind of re-pieced his career together, gave the glory to God, and began to become the prospect they always thought that he would be. This went on for a number of years. And in January of 2009, three and a half years into his sobriety, Josh Hamilton in Arizona, rehabilitating from an injury, Alone in the city there, one evening thought, I have been sober three and a half years. I wonder if I could take a drink. And so he tested out his question, which led to another, which led to another, which led to another. Basically, he just was wasted by the time the evening was over. The next day woke up with a bitter realization that he had relapsed severely. And what was the first thing that Josh Hamilton did? He called his wife, confessed fully his failure, asked for her help and her forgiveness. He cried out to God and admitted his failure to remain focused on Christ and his need for his grace every day. He called the ownership of the Texas Rangers, confessed his relapse. At this point, nobody knew about this as far as he knew. He called Major League Baseball, who ran, ran their, their enforcement programs and their rehabilitation programs, and said, I messed up last night. He made himself accountable when, as far as he knew, he didn't have to. But he knew that, in, in, that secrecy and subterfuge was not the place he needed to be, that he needed to focus on God. He was severely addicted to, to alcohol And that he must make himself accountable. Now, eight months later, Deadspin, which right now has Brett Favre in its targets, ran a couple of photographs of of Josh Hamilton in a bar. Talking about the fact that evidently the devil still isn't Josh Hamilton. Didn't mention the fact that eight months before, the very day of his relapse, he had come clean and gotten honest with God and with others. Now, that's integrity. When I first read that story, I kind of flinched and said, I wish he hadn't have done that. But let me tell you another story. I am addicted to self-centeredness. Well, I had your attention for a moment there. <laughs> I mean, I tend to put the focus on me and do whatever 
benefits me. Christ has come into my life and he has made a huge difference there as I seek to lift my focus from myself to my Savior. But I also know I face that addiction every day. And how often have I had enough integrity to say, you know, today in this set of relationships, I relapsed into my addiction to self-centeredness. I also tend to be a shine specialist. You know what a shine specialist is, don't you? That's the spin doctor who likes to polish and protect and project that image of who he wants you to think he is. The name James Scott is a derivative of Jacob, right? And you told us the other day what the word Jacob means. Now, I have a coffee cup that Marilyn gave me that she bought at a Christian bookstore that has all these wonderful things that the name James means. But actually, it means shyster, trickster, somebody who sneaks up behind you, grabs you by the heel and pulls your feet out from under you. And, and I know that I struggle with trying to project and protect an image. How many times have I been honest enough to say, you know, in our set of relationships today, I really was a little bit dishonest about who I was. To the extent that I can come forward and confess my addiction to self-centeredness and to image management, to that extent, God is building the character of integrity in me, and I am a person he can greatly use to his glory and to the benefit of others. The life that endures is framed by God's mercy. It is freed up by integrity. And finally, for our purposes this morning, it is focused on the finish line. Now, here are the verses we really love about this chapter. We have this treasure in jars of clay. That the all surpassing power is from God and not from us. You see, God is at work in our lives. And his desire is to form our character after the character of Christ. And here we are, these ordinary clay pots. And the, high, the greatest treasure of all has chosen to live in us. And he works through our weakness. Molding and making us into people who can understand that we, we are hard pressed, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. And here is the working of God in our lives. The more self is fading away the more the glory of God in the face of Jesus can shine brightly through us. And what is the glory of God? My understanding is that glory is the visible splendor of the invisible God revealed in the face of Jesus and in the process of being revealed in those who follow him. And what God has begun to do in our lives Second Corinthians four says he will finish and we will prevail because God will prevail. So we can read in verses 16 and following. Therefore, we do not lose heart, 
Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Our problems can be light because his glory is weighty. So we fix our eyes on what is not seen. Rather than what is seen for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You know, we all in our culture worship our bodies. We want to be beautiful. We want to be strong. We want to be handsome forever. But we know that our bodies are fading away and we are in a culture where we desperately try to hang on to our our physical uh, exterior and multi-billion dollar industries are, are being formed to help us to try to do that. But the truth of the matter is our bodies are fading away. Now, for the one who lives abiding in Christ, resting in God's love. Participating with his transforming work in us, the more this external scaffolding is removed, the more Christ is revealed in us. And we see that God is making of us a home prepared in the heavens that we can't even imagine what kind of glory it will represent. So what about you? Would you join with me in desiring to be among the number of those Who live long and well to his glory. Our culture desperately needs it. Even Elton John wrote a song about Roy Rogers. So I have some questions for you this morning. How is God working in this service? Consider these questions. Do I daily, most times, breathe the oxygen Of mercy and grace. Do I swim in the ocean of God's love? Do I know that my heavenly parent loves me just as I am? Are my identity, sufficiency and significance in Christ? Am I free to live from a motivation of love for God and benefit of others? Am I seeking to become the same person off stage that I am on stage? Am I liberated from secrecy and deception and seeking to live daily with transparency and honesty? Do I desire to have the character of Christ formed in me? Am I focused on Christ and his transformation? Am I allowing him to free me from the focus on the physical and the temporary so that I may be focused on the eternal? Do I seek his glory? Do I know that the real treasure is God? Will I this morning lay my life at the feet of Jesus, ready to do everything that he asks? Let's pray together for a moment. This is a time when we want to focus in on listening carefully to God and the purpose that he had each of us in this service today. Where among those questions is God's agenda for me today? Where specifically 
Do I need to lay my life at his feet? Perhaps you're here this morning and you need to dive into that ocean. You need to embrace the Savior. You need to stop running and allow God to catch you this morning and receive Christ into your life. Forgive your sins and be the leader of your life. We're moving to a time of offering. This is a time we worship God with our possessions. This is also a time when you can register the commitment that God is leading you to make today. And there is something healthy about nailing down a commitment. Driving a stake in this moment. You have the connection card. That card can be used to share prayer requests, to ask for more information, to ask for a lot of things. But it's also a place you can write down your commitment this day to the initiative of God's spirit in your life. So use this time wisely and well. Fathers, we prepare for the offering. As we offer up our praise to you. As we offer up the possessions which really belong to you. May we offer up our lives in view of your great mercy to us. In Jesus' name, amen.